Hey, Derek, when's the last time you had to look for a job? Oh, it's been a few years, but man, that process, it, was, it was, wasn't a lot of fun. Interviewing a lot of companies, doing several interviews, and then finally getting a bunch of offers, some of which were disappointing and kind of proved that I wasted a bunch of time. It wasn't much fun. Well, you know, nowadays you can actually flip it around and you can get salary and equity offers up front before you even interview. How do I do that? Well, you just have to visit Hired.com. Oh, Hired.com. I've heard of them, right? That's where I can just submit one application and I can get an average of like five offers. Yeah. And you can get them from like huge companies such as Google or Stripe as well. Right. I'm sure the small companies I'm interested in there are there. What if, what if I just wanted like a contract opportunity? Do you think they could help me out there? I think they can. I think they can do both contract and full-time positions. This sounds like a great deal. How much is it going to cost me? It doesn't cost you anything. And in fact, if you sign up through Hire.com slash Bike Shed, you get a $2,000 signing bonus just for signing up. Wow, this sounds fantastic. Don't tell anybody, but I'm going to have to go check that out. Thanks to Hired.com for sponsoring today's show. You like hot air balloons. They don't go into space. I do like hot air balloons. I don't have one, though. Dude, you've done something wrong. Colorado. <laughs> I mean, I imagine you could get a hot air balloon into space. I don't think you can. There's no air there. <sighs> I mean, I mean, yeah. okay, yes, there's nothing to stop you from taking a hot air balloon into space, but the mechanics of hot air would not what be the thing that was that guy who jumped? There. Like, I guess he didn't really jump from space. Well, and those are, uh, usually when they do those sort of uh, jumpings, jump things, uh, they're like helium or hydrogen balloons. Well, so that's not hot air is what you're telling me. Yeah, <laughs> no. Hot air, hot air wouldn't get you higher. I actually don't know what the maximum height you could go is. Certainly not above like 10 to 15 kilometers, I'd imagine. I look forward to the uh, email telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about and giving the exact height that a hot air balloon can travel because I'm probably <laughs> totally wrong. It'll go along with all the stuff about MPM we're wrong about, so it's okay. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. We haven't talked at all about what we're going to talk about this week, but I had I ran into a problem last week that I wanted to run by you because I felt like as I was solving the problem, I was like, okay, oh, oh, it's a little bit more complicated because X, and it's a little bit more complicated because Y, and it quickly became the kind of thing where I feel like if you are the type of person who gives like a, there's a type of programming interview out there that's like, we're not going to make you whiteboard this. We're just going to talk about this interesting problem that appears simple on the surface but is more complicated than you would think mm -hmm. kind of thing and i feel like this kind of slotted into that realm so i wanted to see like you know if you were see if this is actually i don't know just chat about some of the solutions to this maybe like yeah. i would if i were interviewing you <laughs> okay so the problem was the system i'm working on as i mentioned before is a rewrite of an ex existing system and there was a bug open that said i just had my birthday my test account or whatever just had its birthday and did not receive the customary birthday email. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. They do birthday email. So I look in the existing system to see how this gets kicked off. And right away I see the problem, which is on registration, it says schedule the birthday email for a year from the date of birth they gave us. <laughs> so it, obviously the first problem is like, okay, this only happens for people who have registered through the new site. Right. So then I look at the function that's like schedule the birthday email. And what that does is just farm off to Mandrel to say like, here's an email, deliver it on this date, which happens to be a year from the date of birth you gave us at registration. Okay. Um, hopefully, hopefully the template doesn't change at all. Hopefully the, the template year. doesn't change in the next year. And also, yeah, it is a long way to schedule out an email like that. And then also hopefully your birthday, you didn't fat finger your birthday and you change it. 
And also, hopefully, you only wanted to receive one of those ever because we right. never rescheduled your second birthday email. So, yeah, I mean, daily cron job. That's my first thought, too, right? Daily cron job. So accounts or users, whatever, have a date of birth, which is like, uh, in my case, uh, I'm not going to give my real date of birth, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just because of financial security information. Um, right. Users dot where date of birth is date dot today. Right. So that's what I'm thinking. Give me everybody's birth, date of birth, who's date dot today. Why doesn't that work? Well, there's a number of reasons. The, the, I mean, so I'm assuming to simplify it that you want to send it at like midnight UTC. Right, and then we're ignoring time zones entirely. Sure. Yep. That was a wrinkle I was going to be like, <laughs> I gave up on that wrinkle. I was like, we're just going to ignore time zones. Some people are going to get it a day early. Some people are going to get it a day late, but it'll be close. I don't know. What, so why wouldn't that work then? Uh, because you would only be sending people who were born on that day. Because date of birth includes oh, the right, year. Oh, right. Because you need to forget the year, of course. Right. So that was the first stumbling block. I was like, okay. So we need to actually calculate when your next, like, given date of birth. What is your so like now I'm trying to differentiate between uh, date of birth and birthday, which are kind of two right. different things. So birthday I would consider your month and day of birth, dropping your year. Right. So I start thinking like, well, is this should this be denormalized data that we just like store as like four one, four two, or is it or should we mm. use now you have so if you're not gonna do that, which I leaned towards that as well because I didn't want to have to manage the denormalization, like every time they update birthday, also updating this denormalized field. Right. So then you have to start doing date part queries, where yes. you say Postgres has date part, where you can pull apart, rip apart a date. So I'm like, all right, that's that works great. So then their lead says to me, well, how do we know, like, if midnight UTC comes along and we're doing a deploy, and the job didn't run, then we're not going to email those people on their birthday. So how do we make sure that we're always emailing people on their birthday, or if we missed a day? You know, we go back and we send, like, if, if it didn't run on Tuesday, on Wednesday, we'll, we'll catch those people and we'll just get it a day late. Right. So how do we... How... I mean, the simplest <laughs> answer there is don't have deploys interrupt running cron jobs. Well, it could be anything, right? It could be the database is down for whatever reason, whatever the case may be, right? Networking problem, mandrel's down. Okay, so then at this point, I, I question, is sending a birthday email really so important that we need to cover for the, we deployed at midnight and also Mandrill was down and also we couldn't connect to the database case? Could be either one of those, right? So my answer to this was like, okay, okay, we will have the job keep track of when it last successfully ran, right? So the job will log something in the database that said I last successfully ran on April 1st. So then when the job wakes up again to run, It'll say, when is the last time I successfully ran? It was April 1st. So let's look for people born April 2nd and on. So I figured, like, okay, that'll work. I think that would also help the case where you are trying to prevent it from being run multiple times in a day so people don't get two emails, that kind of thing. Right. Another solution that was kind of bandied about was, like, what if you just stored on the... User, like when I mentioned this to ThoughtBot people, they were like, well, what if you just store it on the user table or wherever or in some other table, like, here's the date that we last congratulated them on a birthday, right? We last right. said happy birthday to them. But then the question is, when do you clear that? Like, Well, so I'd put that in a different table. Right, sure. But you still need um, to know, like, I guess you would then you'd have to do date part logic to say, like, have we wished them happy birthday in 2016? 
Have we right, wished them exactly. a happy if, birthday? Like, if we have to do that, I would change the job to run hourly instead of nightly, and then append the query to check not only where the birthday is equal to today's date without the year, but also the, the there is no entry in the we've wished them a happy birthday table for this year. Right. So that's another thing we were kind of considering. And then I was I was looking at some of the logic, and I was like, what about when somebody's born on February 29th? Right. So under all the circumstances we've laid out now, they're going to get emailed once every four years, which, while technically correct, is not what you want when you say email somebody on their birthday to say happy birthday. Right. So what would you do about that one? <laughs> I mean, leap years are never going to be handled without just a giant ball of special cases. Right. So that's basically like I Googled around, found something on Stack Overflow and was like, yeah, that seems reasonable where you just have to like you do a case on the current year and you figure out if there should be a February 29th this year. And if there should be, don't do anything special because February right. 29th will come along and we'll email them on the right day. If there should not be a February 29th in this year, and it's currently, you have to decide between either emailing them a day early or emailing them a day late. Well, I guess it's not a day early and a day late since that day never happened. I don't know. When would you email somebody who has a birthday on leap day? On the 28th or the 1st? I don't know. The 28th, I would, I would say. That's but... what I said. But most people were like, no, you got to email them on the 1st. It's like, I don't know. I'd rather okay. be early than late. So then you have to, you know, okay, so when you run the job for the 28th, you also have to email them, email anybody who was born on the 29th in non-leap years. So you ready for my slightly horrible answer to this? <laughs> yes, I'm ready for any answer to this. I would, when inserting this record into the database, if their birthday is February 29th, set their birthday to February 28th. Because the percentage of the population who was born on the February 29th is so horrendously small. And the error is you email them one day early for their birthday. Yeah. I mean, this is a financial information site. So the birthday kind of, it does get displayed in places. So sure. like, it would be kind of annoying. So maybe you have a birthday for display and a birthday. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So. Or in or in your cron job when you're doing the query where it's like where date matches or... Their birthday is the 29th and today is the 28th. Right, right. But I would just not handle leap years. <laughs> right. That was the other solution that I was talking to. Like Jankowski was like, what if you just uh, emailed those people once every four years and didn't worry about it? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, or, or just email them once every four years too, yeah. Right. And be like, oh, yeah, it's probably fine. Because it's one quarter of, I mean, ignoring like the there are actually months where people are more born. If we just assume that people are born the same uh, percentage on every day, it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of people who would be born on leap right. years. We did out the math and it was like they're likely to have like seven of these users in their database or something like that. Did you, did, <laughs> did you try just querying the database? No. It's or way more hard fun. code the IDs of the users who've already registered <laughs> who are born on leap year because you probably won't get very many more. It's way more fun to just uh, have conjecture. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing to me was that it's one of those things that boils down to, I say to you as a requirement, I want to send an email to everybody on their birthday. And as a human, you understand that that means on the occasion of the anniversary of their birth every single year, you want to send them an email. And you also probably picked up, like if you really had, if you thought about it for half a second, you would pick up that like you needed to handle leap years. And if they were born on February 29th, you just wish them a happy birthday on February 28th. Right? Right. And that would be that. But to tell a computer this is significantly more complicated. <laughs> You're like, oh, well, I need to manage some state ongoing about whether or not I've already emailed them. And then, okay. and then also, like, I need to tell the computer about how to rip apart their date and query based on that. Like, it's just one of those, it's one of the classic problems of, like, this feature sounds so simple, but if I were to fix this, it's going to take me a day. 
Well, and there's also, I think, when, when you're talking about Rails apps, too, I think the majority of people, when we've just given all this conditional logic, would write out this like really horrible where clause, as opposed to what we would do in literally any other language, which is extract a function called is birthday. Right. Which yep. takes a row and returns whether, like, you know, as a SQL function. Yep. Yep. And that's what I was kind of leaning towards starting doing, like, just is birthday. So select all from accounts where is birthday. Right. And that would that would have in it the leap year stuff if, it, if we wanted to handle that. Yep. Then it doesn't seem that bad when it's just hidden behind a function somewhere. And then ultimately, it actually was like, well, we want to change a bunch of stuff about this birthday email anyway. We don't think we're using it very well. Just remove it. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, great. That's a totally like... Because like we're trying to get this thing relaunched, and I was like, "How much value does this thing have?" We it's going to take me an, at least an entire day to get this and get this right and tested and done yeah. well to the point where I'm happy with it. Is this really worth it, or should I do three other things that are in that day that are going to be more important? And the answer was do the three other things. Uh, actually, the answer didn't come for a few days later, and I just sat on it. And then a few days later, they said, "Oh, if you're still working on that," and I was like, "No, no, no I'm not still working on that." <laughs> I ignored that problem, hoping it would go away, and it did. And the other solution That's that was good. suggested by somebody there, which was actually a really good solution, which was like, we're already using MailChimp for some things. MailChimp evidently has like email, say, say happy birthday kind of things built mm -hmm. in. So we could just sync users and their birthday to MailChimp. Yeah. And I bet they would find other reasons after we synced all the users to MailChimp to use MailChimp for things. Sure. I mean, that also sounds like it would be as much of a hassle as denormalizing their birthday. Because you have to resync when their birthday changes. Well, yeah, just I mean, it's the exact same thing, right? You have state elsewhere that you have to keep up to date. That isn't it's it's push not pull. Yeah, but it's much simpler state because you're talking about a timestamp where you're like, true. When's the last time this thing changed? Has it changed since the last time I successfully run? Yes. There's no date part. There's no leap days. There's no like SQL understands all of that part for you. Right. There's nothing fancy you have to do there. That's a standard windowing problem that I feel like everybody's done a million times. Yeah. Um, where you have to build a query, a windowed query. But that's kind of how I was approaching the date of birth thing at first was like, oh, this is just a windowed query. And I was like, oh, wait, date of birth, that's the only, okay, that's only going to give me people who are born today, and those people can't even register, so that's no good. <laughs> 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 They're too stupid to use a computer. Ugh. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. Like I, like I said, I, I enjoyed telling that story to my wife because it was like an example of something that sounds just so ridiculously easy for humans to understand that it's like, but if I wanted to build this, it would be a day. Yeah. So you passed the interview. <laughs> I passed the interview? Yeah. You I got, got the, job. the job? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I'll let them know that you can build it when it comes up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it'd be easier with diesel because we support arbitrary user-defined SQL functions. So does Ecto, so. Yes. You just define your schema in SQL. So that's that was actually really nice because I've also today I'm working on something where I'm using a trigger. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll just use a trigger for this. I'll define a trigger and it'll run. It'll be fine. And I don't have to worry about will it get dumped to schema RB? Do I have to switch to structure not SQL? I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I'm just gonna do this. It'll be great. When you embrace triggers as a maintainer, there's so much stuff that you just well, you still have to worry about it, but it becomes way simpler. Like, cause Diesel has almost all of Rails uh, timestamp helpers. But none of it exists in Rust. Instead, we export a SQL function that you can call from your migration saying manage updated at on this table for me. Because you can just use the same trigger for every single table that, that, right. that has an updated at column. Right. It just takes The triggers just take a function that you want to call. Right. And the function doesn't need to know, like, even though Postgres is reasonably statically typed, in this case, a row is just sort of a dynamically typed thing. Right. One of the things it gets is the new row or the old row. And you can just operate on it based that based on that. 
Ironically, you do have to, uh, depending on whether it was create or update, you have to conditionally either operate on the new row or the old row. But again, that's like one kind of ugly trigger function, and then you just call that uh, this other function, which just... And the only reason we have this other function is because I can never remember the syntax for setting up a trigger. <laughs> but anyway, right, and then create it at, you don't need anything to handle it for you. You just do default now. Yep. And then update it at, you just, you just do it with the trigger, and then it just works. And we don't have to worry about syncing state because diesel doesn't uh, operate on mutation when you... It works similarly-ish to ecto. But like where we do, where we append, if you want to get the result of the up, uh, updated record, when you call the appropriate method, we we tack returning star onto the query. Right. Anyway, I had a fun, I had a fun SQL thing happen uh, today. All right. So we have this benchmark suite for diesel, and it's pretty. I, I should really expand it, um, but it's mostly just there so that I have like a, a a baseline of obvious performance regressions, and then something semi-easy to implement with other languages or libraries if I want to compare diesel to something else. And so we do now six benchmarks. Yeah, per backend we do six. Uh, it used to be three, but basically it would be selecting no rows with a trivial query, and the trivial query is select star from users. Uh, and I do the select no rows because uh, I, I am actually going to the database just to make sure that there's no clever optimizations happening where it actually just eliminates the entire query builder because it notices that it's never doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I just round trip to it uh, on an empty database and select star from users. So I do that with no rows on a trivial query and then with 10,000 rows on that trivial query and then no rows on a medium complex query, which has got some joins in it and some, and some where clauses and some ordering. And I do that with no rows and then with 10,000 records. And so... Uh, and now I, I have that. I doubled that, so it's actually eight. Um, and I doubled that when we introduced the new uh, boxed queries feature uh, in Diesel zero point six, which came out yesterday, because I want to make sure that uh, I also don't introduce performance regressions that affect boxing, where monomorphization is less uh, and inlining is less of a thing that you can do. And so I, ha- I can run those against Postgres. I run those against SQLite, and the Postgres ones were always really frustrating, because what would happen is. So I'd run them, and it runs them in alphabetical order. Um, so it first runs the empty, medium, complex, and then the empty, trivial. And it takes like uh, 90 microseconds followed by like 10 microseconds, I think, on Postgres. And almost all of that's just round-trip time. Um, but the reason I test on the empty database is basically for my baseline of here's how long the query builder takes compared to here's how long our deserializer takes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and, then, and then it would get to the 10K records... And then we get to the next 10K records, and, and so I'd go through all of them. And if I ran them again, which I'm usually running them twice if I'm running them because I'm checking master versus some branch to check for regressions. And the second time, the case where it's empty would take longer than the 10K rows the first time or would take up to 20 milliseconds uh, usually around the second time. And then everything would just start having really inconsistent timings. And in my mind, I was uh, the first time I, I really started to see that, I sort of shrugged it off. I'm like, Maybe we're just throwing queries because, especially in the since the, the the first place I always noticed it because it's the first thing that runs is the uh, is the empty table case, mm-hmm. right? And it and the first run it it takes seventeen microseconds. So I'm like maybe Postgres gets upset if you send a query to it on the same connection every seventeen microseconds <laughs> uh, for several seconds, and like we're just so fast that Postgres can't keep up. <laughs> um, I'm guessing course, that, you know, that wasn't about, the like, problem. <laughs> no, and of course as I thought about, it, I'm like. I'm pretty sure Postgres can scale pretty okay <laughs> and can handle 
Anyway, once we had SQLite support, I sort of stopped worrying about it too much and just ran the SQLite benchmarks much more frequently because those would give me consistent results. But it was always really frustrating because I'd come back, you know, like a day or two later and I'd run the Postgres benchmarks and it'd be the, it would be the really short times again, what, I, what you'd expect for the empty table. It'd be like um, 70, 70 microseconds and like 10 microseconds. So today I was working on a change to how our query builder works where we now do two passes over our AST. And so in theory, walking our AST as long as we're not doing work on every node, like we, we shouldn't be paying a cost because the compiler will inline this and optimize it away. Mm-hmm. And so most things that we want to walk our AST for are effectively free. But that's all well and good, but I want to see the benchmarks prove it. And so the, uh, the, the SQLite benchmarks did show this. And in fact, I was expecting possibly even a minor regression. Uh, I was more making trying to make sure we didn't have a significant regression because if it was a minor regression, I could fix it later. But actually, we're now a little bit faster. Basically, we separate, separate out the construction of the SQL from the collection of the bind parameters. And I'm guessing the inliner is now, because it doesn't have the collect this bind param intermixed with construct this SQL, it's probably able to do a better job of optimizing some of the SQL construction. Um, and skipping several several allocations. And this is one, though, that would affect the Postgres case differently, especially because there was one line in how I did things that kind of stuck out to me as, uh, I'm pretty sure the, that the optimizer can see through this, but I, want, I really want to make sure. And I couldn't get consistent results. <laughs> and so I banged my head against this for like an hour. Because like the thing that was failing was a, a effectively select star from users. Uh, I say effectively because it listed out the exact columns, but that should not change the performance characteristics of, of a query ever. And so I'm like, all right, let's see, let's see what's going on here. So I mm-hmm. did explain, analyze, select star, analyze, explain, select star from users. So explain, analyze, explain whichever one an- it is. Explain, analyze. Yep. I always get it backwards, and then when it yells at me for a syntax error, I fix it. Um, <laughs> And I noticed that it said rows uh, like 500 and something thousand. And it was costing it ridiculously high. And the actual amount of time it was taking to run this query was now 70 milliseconds. Okay. And so what, what it turns out... But there are no, the way, there, to be clear, there are no actual rows. Right. And, okay. and that was one of the first things I was thinking about. I went through several uh, things that I was thinking maybe were wrong. Because the way the tests work is establish an action, open a transaction, stick 10,000 rows in there, and then run this uh, query over and over again in a loop. The select star query. Mm -hmm. uh, Or the more complex one in in those benchmarks. Um, So the first thing I was thinking was maybe it's doing some weird state thing with uh, the transactions because I'm running thousands of queries in a single transaction. So I tried eliminating the transaction and then just doing delete star from uh, users at the beginning of every test. And that didn't change anything. And then I did accidentally interrupt it once and left 10,000 rows in there. So that was my next thought was like, maybe there's more data in here than I thought that I think there is. So I started adding some asserts and it turns out, oh, there was 10,000, but that like deleting those 10,000 rows didn't actually help. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, maybe I am just clogging up Postgres somehow. So I started like shutting down and starting Postgres back up again, didn't help. But no, so it turns out when I ran this explain analyze, what was happening, and yes, so there were, there were no actual rows in the database. And so it would give it a cost of uh, zero through like enormous number. Mm-hmm. in the query planner. So it turns out what happens is if you create a record in a transaction, the query planner in its internal uh, statistics still accounts for this immediately, even if the transaction never commits. And so every time uh, these benchmarks would run, it would think that there were 10,000 more rows, and so it would co- the cost would go up. 
Now, I'm not familiar enough with Postgres's internals to know exactly why that then led to the query to actually slow down. My guess is in preparation for what it thought it was going to be getting out, it allocates a lot, a larger chunk of memory. Yeah, that seems And then it just gets sufficiently large that it's expensive. Right. That would be my best guess. So, <laughs> that or more, the other thing is it would give it more disk space. So, it might also be the time it takes to read from disk. Right. So, this would, <laughs> this, is this a problem in diesel? No. So, number one, creating 10,000 rows inside of a transaction and then not committing that transaction and then doing that over and over again in a loop is not a normal thing to do. And the reason that if I'd come back a day or two later that my, my numbers would go back down to normal was because the regular vacuum that Postgres runs would, would clean it up. So like it's, not, it's definitely not a problem in diesel. It was just a problem with my benchmarks and not accounting for the fact that Postgres will slow down these queries uh, even though I'm never committing the, the transactions. So right. now all I do is just in the benchmarks, um, I, I truncate the tables. And that's the other thing. If that's important, it's to truncate the table, not delete star. Because truncate will reset the primary key counter, immediately reclaim disk space, and immediately vacuum. You can't just roll back the transaction? I am rolling back the transaction. Okay. But, um, but that doesn't clear up the state of the query planner? Right. I, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, right? Because a vacuum is actually pretty expensive, which is why you normally only do it every couple of days. And like the only way for it to clean this stuff up would be for it to basically vacuum whenever a transaction is rolled back. Right. That makes sense. I don't really understand what happens in a vacuum, but it comes up often where it's like, why is this slow? Vacuum. You're like, oh, okay. I don't understand what's going on there. But <laughs> I mean, it basically just reclaims unnecessary disk space, compacts indexes that have gaps due to deleted rows, and okay. then analyzes the table to check if the assumptions it's making about it when it does its query planning are still true. Okay. Is that the same as doing an analyze? Is that part of that? Because there's also an analyze yes. query. Okay, so that's part of vacuuming is doing the analyze, which basically, like to my understanding, makes the indexes more performant by probably doing what you were just saying. Like Postgres makes sure that what it, what it understands about the table is actually true. Right. Okay, interesting. And, and it's incredibly fast to do if your table is completely empty. <laughs> right. If truncate table is equivalent, it turns out to be very fast. But normally, normally truncate table would not be equivalent. Yeah, so the other time I've run into something like this is if you are working on really large tables. Mm -hmm. And like, let's say you have an admin dashboard that's like, show me a count of all the posts in the system. So it's just doing select count of star from posts. Right. That turns out to be That's really, slow. really slow on Postgres because it can't yeah. use any indexes. And it's just like, all right, I'll scan the table, see how many are here. And it's if you have like where posts where published is true, then it can use an index and it can get that answer. So just a single where clause. Depend, depending on how many rows it gets back from that. Yes, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Um, so the index could like it can the, the idea being count queries can use an index if the index exists. But if you're just doing select star, uh, on a large table, you're basically screwed. <laughs> right. And so I actually released a gem for this because I thought this would, <laughs> it's called approximately. And what it does is basically look at the data as of the last time Postgres vacuumed and gets you the count from there. Um, but I've never actually had a reason to use it because vacuuming doesn't run often enough for that number to be of value to anybody, really. <laughs> uh, right. You could vacuum again and get it to run, but at that point, it takes too much time to vacuum, so it's no big deal. Uh, but if you, I guess if you needed an approximate count of the users in your system and you had millions and millions of rows, then maybe you could check out this gem that I'm sure nobody uses. But it's got a pretty cool name, <laughs> approximately. 
That's pretty good. Surprised that wasn't already taken, actually. That yeah, I like. I think I built. I think I built the gem mostly because it was there. So you just say like you say approximate count dot of, and then you give it like vote dot table name or whatever, <laughs> and it would give you the number <laughs> of votes. Yeah, that's where this actually originally came from. Was because on the homepage we wanted the total number of votes, and there were a lot of votes in the system. Uh, this was on the TUND thing where there were polls, and they wanted the number of people who had voted in a poll or whatever. Right. But yeah, it turned out that the vacuuming doesn't happen often enough for that to be useful and we could just recalculate it once and store it in the database or maybe we could have just used caching for that but we didn't for whatever reason i think lila and i talked about things yeah we could have just used like um rails cache to store like we had a job that ran and got a bunch of statistics about the site and stored it in a table but we could have just used we could have just used rails cache and not have to have a job i mean you could Um, also just use a counter cache yeah but there's no relationship to those right like well, you could where, roll your own for like you the ca- whole table. Yeah, I guess you just have a you have a table that's like, and then it would have to have a relationship that's existent only to keep the count. No, no, I just mean like yeah, well, or I, yes, you could actually just make Rails do it for you by giving it that relationship. I was more just thinking, yes, you have this table that has a, oh, okay. the, this one row, and then you just in a in a before uh, before create and and before delete, or just after create and after delete. Yeah go incremented automatically right i for whatever reason i thought you were suggesting like adding a relationship that existed only so that there was a counter cache that could be incremented <laughs> and like no, all, no, no. The, and all the rows would have the view. same relationship <laughs> and you put it behind a view and you do select one as thing id <laughs> so that you don't accidentally point it at the wrong thing sure yeah obviously yeah <laughs> what could possibly go wrong yeah so those were two weird things we dealt with this week i guess huh yeah <laughs> Me trying to explain how birthdays work to computers, and um, you trying to figure out why selecting from an empty table took forever. I mean, forever yeah. was seventy milliseconds or whatever. But you know. Well, so and also to be clear, because I think it's just important to note, right? Of course, doing select star from a table gets significantly slower as the as the size of the table grows, but the max that would ever be there is ten thousand rows, and it should still take less than a tenth of a millisecond for right. ten thousand rows. Yeah, that's the thing I see a lot is people being like, this table is enormous. And you're like, oh, how many rows? They're like, 250,000. You're like, no, no, it's not enormous. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's still an index that can fit in memory for most, for most tables. <laughs> I guess I, I feel like on most of the projects I have, we don't actually have big data. We don't qualify. No, well, and, and right, and when you do, you almost always have only a small subset that you generally care about, so you can warehouse it really easily. Yep. On the ones, I was going to say, on the ones where the table size has been large enough to cause us problems, it has been a design problem and not a, not the fact that like we're just so phenomenally successful that we have all this data we need. Right. And then count star becomes really easy because it never it changes like once a year when you when you update the warehouse. <laughs> plus plus the amount of the live data, but then it's small enough that you can count that quickly. Yep. All right. Should that be it for today? Can be. Okay. I'm cool with that. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 61. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you again next time.